Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we're going to talk about why no one goes to the movies anymore. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so this, you may have noticed that a lot of blockbusters are kind of flopping at the box office this past June, and really there's really been a string of ever since Endgame, which, which was huge, um there really hasn't been that kind of buzz to gather around another movie and really sort of let lift something up as a hit. And it really doesn't matter really the size of the movie, even smaller films, people aren't going to go see them, even if those films are well-reviewed. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the bigger films that haven't been hitting the smaller films and try to get at the question of why are people, not coming to the films. Cause I don't think there really is any one simple answer here. You can't just simply say franchise fatigue or, you know, not enough original content. Like there's something happening. And I think we should all, I think we wanted to discuss that. People uh, are just really over twisty Matthew McConaughey movies. That's why serenity tanked. Exactly. There's been too many of them. <laughs> too, too many. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, when you look at sort of this sort of string of flops, that's getting a lot of attention right now, uh, sort of Godzilla had kind of a under underperformed and it's kind of at a, it's not an outright flop, but it's kind of soft in it's box office numbers. Um, detective Pikachu kind of died off pretty quickly. Um, then you have, uh, uh, I'm sorry, dark Phoenix that bombed. Uh, and then this past weekend, Men in Black International bombed. And so you have these sort of these – there's obviously a, a huge reliance for studios on franchises because these studios are part of ma- massive corporations. And then as a massive corporation, you want something that's a low risk, you know, high reward to investors. So if you're a studio head, IP is your best bet because it has built-in name recognition And you can, even if it fails, you can be like, well, you know, on paper, the Men in Black franchise has succeeded for us, but we needed to do a reboot. So, you know, Tom Rothman gets to keep his job, even though, you know, because he didn't take a gamble on the Men in Black franchise. It doesn't look like a gamble, even though the film uh, flopped. But he also sort of spread out the risk by having a lot of, you know, foreign investors invest in the film. And it's just kind of this weird movie now that'll just instantly be forgotten. And it's like, oh, they made a fourth Men in Black film, <laughs> and no one's careers will be harmed. Yeah, no, if, nothing is going to happen. Gray like, is already moved on to directing the Mask movie, and Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth. That you will just forget that they were in this movie. Yeah, it'll be. It's this very weird little oddity now that just exists. Um, you know, which is fine. I mean, again, the original Men in Black isn't harmed at all. It's just. It's disappointing, you know, you'd hope that a film starring Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson, you know, people like Men in Black, but I guess they don't like it that much. Or, you know, there's the other part of it, which is that people, you know, what something has to demand that you're like, I need to see this opening weekend. And that's, you know, the marketing is there to sort of like drive you to it, to make it a thing. Like the whole don't spoil the end game. Like no one was staying up nights being like, oh. Endgame spoilers like at Marvel <laughs> like they don't care like that like that's not their primary 
that's not their priority. Their priority is making sure you see the movie and saying, if you don't see it this opening weekend, it might be spoiled for you. That is what they they want. They want you to come opening weekend. There's nothing really about Men in Black International that says, come see it opening weekend. And so it's not that the film is necessarily like no one will ever see it, but I'm willing to bet like people are like, oh, I'll see that. Like, like I, I'm saying like, I'll see that on an airplane. <laughs> I don't need to see it now, but I'll see it on an airplane sometime or I'll see it like, you know, I'll rent it for a dollar at Redbox, but there's nothing about it that says like it must be seen and it must be seen now. Yeah, I will have a perfectly fine Saturday afternoon a year from now watching it on HBO and right. be like, oh, all right. So that's what that was. Exactly. Like there's nothing, there's no immediacy of it. So, you know, the thing is, is that uh, the important thing to remember, you know, we talk, we've talked in the past about how like TV ratings are down and that's because people's viewing habits has changed. Well, Movie box office can decline as well because viewing habits change. So people don't no longer have to feel like they have to see this movie to be part of the conversation unless it's at the level of something like Endgame, which ironically is a the end the, the season finale of a long TV show. Yes, yeah, it's it's really weird and interesting and and upsetting and surprising and i feel entirely complicit in this because as you said i look at something like men in black international i'm like oh i don't have to see that in a you know theater there's no really urgency to see it the reviews aren't great i'll see it at some point and so i don't want to see it i mean a big blockbuster movie like that no harm no foul but something like like booksmart that i want to see that i intend to see i still have not seen in theaters and now it's being pulled from theaters and i don't feel terrible about seeing it on a smaller screen uh, because it's not the kind of film like um, Avengers Endgame or even something like Aladdin, which I did not enjoy, but that's kind of like a communal, you know, big screen experience. Um, and there's something to be said for comedies. I mean, I, I, I feel like a hypocrite because having seen Longshot in a theater where everyone was laughing and I had a really great time, and then here I am saying like, uh, I don't have time for Booksmart right now. I'll make time for it later where I'm sure it's a perfectly enjoyable experience in theaters and you support the filmmakers. And it's important to do that for smaller movies like that because the proof is in the pudding. If Booksmart makes, you know, a hundred million dollars off a budget of $15 million that gives Olivia Wilde the clout to make another movie. That's why Jordan Peele got to make us after get out. Um, and us is another film that did like surprisingly, not surprisingly, but if you look at, the top domestic grocers right now in the U.S. for the year. Number one is Avengers Endgame. Number two is Captain Marvel. Marvel. Number three is Aladdin. And number four is Us. Us made $175 million. There was a sense of urgency with that movie. Having, you know, been coming off the get out train where that movie really hit the zeitgeist in a huge way, it was teased as this is the next nightmare from Jordan Peele. And wouldn't it be great to see this in a crowded theater and wouldn't it be great to see to be spooked together and don't you want to see it before everyone else so like it doesn't get spoiled for you and those are all great reasons to see that in a theater and it did extremely well yeah i mean that's the thing these movies are basically making the case for why they have to be seen in a theater now you know you and you and i love movies but at the same time like you know, speaking for myself, I get invited to a lot of press screenings, so I don't have to pay to see these movies. Yeah, like and it, I do, and you I do get press screening a month, maybe. Yeah, so it's it's not only about paying for it, but it's finding time. Like if my fiance is working, like if she has one night free per weekend, and I'm like, well, this is the biggest movie that we're probably going to talk about on the podcast. I guess we have to go see that one, and we go see that one. Or it's like I'm just ruining your relationship, aren't I? <laughs> 
hates me. No, <laughs> luckily she loves movies as well, and she's fine seeing pretty much anything, um, except for Paul Thomas Anderson movies. I made her go see The Master on my birthday, and she still has not let me live that down. Um, but uh, it's it's a lot. Like it's an investment. You have to take time out of your day. Uh, you have to take money out of your pocket to go and see this thing, and the time is a big part of it. I mean. Time is valuable, and you know if you have a very busy life and you have obligations, familial, relationship-wise, choosing to see one movie a week is still kind of hard to find time to do that. Uh, I mean, a, a nice uh, quote-unquote life hack to quote the uh, youngins these days is to go during the week and see kind of cheap movies, but not everyone can do that. Um, and if you have kids, you know it's a lot harder to get out to see movies. So I get it. I understand. Uh, why it's hard and and I understand that you know the flip side of that is you have a lot you don't have very much free time and it's and TV is so good right now and it's so much easier to just stay home and watch whatever on demand anytime you want well and that's the thing we don't know how these sort of other we don't know how the TV is performing on streaming services like they don't give you those numbers really so for instance like Always Be My Maybe could be huge, but we'll never know because Netflix is like, trust us, people saw it. <laughs> but there's no data there to actually use it as like, like, oh, the X many people went to see Always Be My Maybe. So people do want smaller comedies, but they just want to see them on Netflix. There's no ba- – I can't compare Always Be My Maybe to Booksmart, um, even though they're both small comedies. I can't track the performance of one to the other. All I know is that if I'm a casual viewer looking for like a nice comedy on a Friday night and I can just stay home and watch Netflix and, oh, there's something new and it's pop, it's also well-received, then I'll watch that, then go out to the theater, pay money and deal with, you know, shitty people who treat the, the theater like it's their living room and poor projection and poor sound quality and just, you know, it's... The thing is, is that theaters aren't making their own case right now about like why they are preferable to your home, and they're just whining about shorter release windows. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm lucky where I'm located. There are some really great theaters, so I don't have I don't see that problem as much. Though I know that problem lucky exists. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah, and I and I there are theaters that I avoid because of that reason because they just don't give a shit. They don't care. Uh, and it's basically you have to sit through like 25 minutes of commercials before you get to the previews and the pre-show and all that stuff. Um, but always be my maybe on Netflix is a perfect example. Like that movie was released on Netflix on a Friday. My fiance worked until 9 p.m. that Friday. When she gets off, like it's too like I don't really love going to see like a 10:15 p.m. movie, especially if it's you know two hours plus 25 30 minutes for previews or whatever. But it was very easy to just come home, open a bottle of wine, and fire up Always Be My Maybe on Netflix. Like, it's so easy. Right. There, and there's... and did I, do I like Always Be My Maybe as much as, um, you know, some other romantic comedies I've seen in theaters? No. Um, but it was still a pleasant and enjoyable experience. Yeah, I really liked it a lot. But the, the, the larger point is that there's way more competition now. Um that being said, I don't want to go so far to be like, this is the new normal. No yeah. one will ever go to movies again. I also feel like, you know, ironically, we are jumping the gun a little bit. I don't want to say like summer 2019 is a failure because like on the one hand, yeah, we need something to talk about. And neither one of us wanted to be like, hey, do you want to talk about Men in Black International specifically? <laughs> and <laughs> No, not really, because there's a there's a more interesting topic at hand. But that being said, I 
you know, we're coming up on, you know, this, this coming Friday is Toy Story 4, which I've seen and it's great. And I think that film is going to be very successful. And then you've got, um, you've got a new Spider-Man movie. That's going to be huge. You've got the Lion King. That's going to be huge. Um, Hobbs and Shaw is probably going to be massive. So it's not like, well, this summer's a bust. What we're just seeing is it just, we're, it happens to be a lot of flops in a row but I don't think that just because Dark Phoenix fails, no one's going to go see Hobbs and Shaw. No, and I also think there's room for diversity. I'm very curious to see how uh, Tarantino's new movie does. Because Django Unchained was a massive box office hit. And with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you have... I mean, just putting Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio on a poster, like that kind of star power doesn't really exist anymore because you look at like even the Marvel model, like sure, now we look at Avengers and it's like, oh man, it's so great to see Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. in the same frame. But back when these movies started, like Chris Evans was not a massive draw to the box office. Like he was a known actor, but it wasn't like he was a huge well, and thing. At the, and at the end of the day, to to be blunt – it's still the Marvel characters. And again, yes. look no further than Men in Black International starring Thor and Valkyrie. Yeah. Well, and Hemsworth has had a lot of trouble breaking out. I mean, he wasn't a draw for Bad Times at El Royale, which I loved. Uh, he wasn't a draw for In the Heart of the Sea. Um, and I think I think you hit up on something really interesting. And, and it's something we noticed at Comic-Con uh, when we used to go to Comic-Con. <laughs> you and I now work Comic-Con from home uh, for the most part. Um, but... Uh, that is that like we would sit through these panels with um for like the the movies and you know the crowd would be kind of so-so or would be interested depending on kind of the topic at hand but the panels for the tv shows uh people went nuts because with tv shows they're not sitting there so like the big bang theory panel the crowd are not like massively into johnny galecki like i don't think they were just huge roseanne fans it's it's getting to see this person who plays this character that you've grown to love over, you know, seven, eight, nine years. You've spent a large chunk of your life identifying with, enjoying spending time with these characters. So it's not even necessarily the actors. So I think that's a that's a good point when it comes to the Marvel Cinematic Universe is it's not even really Paul Rudd that's the draw for Ant-Man. Although Paul Rudd is obviously charming. Uh, maybe he's a bad example. But um, it, like Jeremy Renner, like people aren't like, oh, yeah, I want to see that Hurt Locker dude really fuck some people up. It's it's kind of like, oh, I want to. And, and if you don't Hawkeye believe us, is. go check the box office numbers on the Bourne Legacy. <laughs> when you, you started that sentence, I was like, what movie was he in that was supposed to be a franchise? Yep. That, <laughs> Just that's kind of, Yeah. But it's so it's really interesting now because television and and serialized storytelling has become so massive and so huge, and people love spending time with these people. And much has been written over the death of the movie star, um, which you know uh, Bill Simmons' egg on his face. He wrote about the death of Ryan Reynolds, the movie star. But how much of the success of Deadpool Deadpool is over Ryan Reynolds, and how much of it is over the Deadpool character? You know what I mean? And, and to be fair, I think, you know, Ryan Reynolds brings that character to life in a way that oh, other sure. people wouldn't. But that being said, that's a phrase I'm way overusing on this episode. That being said, fuck me. Uh, that even, being said. But that being <laughs> damn it. <laughs> now I'm stuck. Uh, you can look at Ryan Reynolds and be like, well, but people will go see Ryan Reynolds in anything. And I still don't think that's necessarily true. People like, you know, take a look at life. The Venom prequel. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
that that wasn't it either. Um, and so, I mean, but before we recorded this podcast, Matt and I were kind of running down, like, okay, what were the ones that didn't hit as big? You know, Godzilla had a bit of a soft opening. Godzilla is by no means a, a disaster and um, and everything, but the the studio head has already hinted that they may be delaying the release of Godzilla versus Kong a little bit to quote unquote make sure it's right, um, which suggests that they're looking at the performance of Godzilla King of the Monsters and saying what went wrong here. Um, but we were trying to find kind of like a through line. Like what did like why are people not showing up to these certain movies and why why are people showing up to these other ones? Um and like Dark Phoenix, I think, and we we covered this when we talked about that film specifically in that franchise, is that audiences weren't given enough time to identify with and come to know and care about Sophie Turner as Jean Grey or Ty Sheridan as Cyclops. And the trailers lean very heavily on Sophie Turner as Jean Grey and not as heavily on, you know, Michael Fassbender or even Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique uh, for good reason because she's barely in the movie. Um, but the films that have been doing well, like Avengers Endgame, um, like uh, even John Wick Chapter 3 is doing extremely well. It, it grossed $148 million domestic, um, which is fantastic. Uh, seem to be like people connecting to characters and and not necessarily feeling obligated to continue on with a franchise or even start a new franchise. Like maybe is it new beginnings? Is that what people are are not into? Because even like Pokemon Detective Pikachu, everyone thought was going to make bukus of money, um, and it's made four hundred twenty one million dollars worldwide, which is not bad. But it's not the uh, like you know. I think people were expecting that to go up to seven, eight hundred million dollars, and it definitely did not. And it's also a film that like no one is talking about anymore. Like it just doesn't exist. No, and that's that's the case with a lot of these. Um, like Alita: Battle Angel. Do you remember that movie came out? <laughs> remember that movie exists? It is so, a thing so that, you say, but it is a thing that is around. Um, Hellboy, the Hellboy reboot. I mean, that was another beginning. Um, that movie just died and died on the vine. Um, I don't know. Even Glass, like Glass, did all right, but it wasn't. Uh, I mean, the reviews weren't what they wanted, and it's a Blumhouse movie, so it it made a profit, but uh, it's. I mean, that will happen when the climax of your film takes place in a parking lot. You will <laughs> yes, save. You will save some money. I'll tell you that. And then even Disney isn't foolproof. If you look at Dumbo this year, Dumbo, I mean, their their live action remakes have been on a streak, but then they hit. And I, so I don't consider the Nutcracker a live action remake, but it is part of the same arm of the Disney studio. So if you look at the Disney production process and like who is making what movies, obviously Lucasfilm makes Star Wars, Marvel Studios makes Marvel movies, but then there is a live action division, which solely is mostly right now focusing on live action remakes, but then they had the Nutcracker last year, which was a massive bomb and it did not matter. <laughs> Everyone forgot about it. Um, it. It didn't even gross $200 million, which is pretty embarrassing for, I'll, I'll let y'all in a little, I'll let y'all in on a little secret. The Nutcracker movie is not that bad. It's actually kind I, of enjoyable. I, I kind of want to see it. It it's, looks at least visually interesting. It is visually interesting. And more than that, like it's a film that like just unapologetically has a full ballet sequence. Just oh. just to have it. All right. You know, cool. it's it's pretty, you know, and Disney can throw away that money because they're Disney. So if Disney yeah. wants to throw away mo- mo- money on movies like The Nutcracker, I'd much rather them throw it away on that, which is a film I at least found interesting, even if it doesn't entirely work, than Aladdin, which seems pointless and cynical and cheap. Yeah. And like, so Dumbo, 
made $351 million worldwide, which is not great when you consider the budget was $170 million, and it was marketed as like the next film, film from Tim Burton. And then audience turn up in droves to Aladdin, which has already made $727 million worldwide. Uh, and is that like – is it nostalgia? I'm just kind of – I'm trying to make sense of all this and I'm well, kind of I talking think, it out and maybe I mean, this just – I definitely think it's, it's nostalgia because let's, let's face it. If you were alive when the original Dumbo – was released you don't really give a shit (laughs) and i think and honestly i think that's their um i i also think that's their vault backfiring against them because disney with their vault creating an artificial demand like it was harder for people to actually grow up with dumbo because sometimes dumbo would be in the fucking vault which is not a thing like the, the vault to create this artificial you know scarcity for artificial demand just if they had just left it out there, people might have more people might have grown up with Dumbo. And I also think you're way overspending on your fucking Dumbo movie. A hundred and seventy <laughs> million? Like Cinderella is a from that same era. It's but, you know, Cinderella only costs ninety-five million. And so when that film makes five hundred and forty-three million worldwide, that's a much bigger success story. I think they were hinging on Tim Burton to make something that was huge, which was a mistake because yeah, because yeah, exactly. Like, I'm sorry, have you not been aware of Tim Burton's career for the last decade or so? <laughs> Did you not see Big Eyes? I, I would have pulled out Miss Peregrine, but you do you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I'm just saying, Miss Peregrine is a more expensive movie than Big Eyes, but you know, whatever. Yeah, um, but it's it's interesting to look at the the you know top domestic grocers of the year so far and avengers endgame is at 830 captain marvel which we haven't talked about yet is at 426 um which obviously did huge and then uh, aladdin's at 264 but obviously is at you know over 700 million worldwide um top three spots go to disney but then disney also has dumbo which is you know considered a disappointment i don't i don't know if i'd go so far as to say a failure but when your budget is 170 million and you have to you know, one and a half times that uh, will roughly give you how much it actually costs. You have to consider the Disney marketing budget and everything like that. Um, it's not making a huge profit. And you have to imagine Tim Burton is getting money on the back end of that. So that one's not great. So it's not, it's not like Disney is full foolproof or, um, you know, can, can get out unscathed. And we haven't even talked about the Lego movie, too. That movie makes me so sad. <laughs> it makes me so sad because it's like I not only do I love the original, but like it's a movie that's so close to being what it needs to be. Like it actually has like some really strong themes and ideas, but it doesn't come together like it should. And also, I think, you know, when we're talking about IP, that brand really got exhausted. Like yeah. they Warner Brothers the first Lego movie was clearly a hit they were not expecting. They like that movie opened way bigger than they thought it would. And they're like, oh, my God, we have something. We have a new franchise. And then they were like, OK, let's crank out Lego Batman. And for some reason, Lego Ninjago and put them in the same year. And then, you know, so by that point, like you never really have time to let these films. Ex- it, it looks like the cash grab that it is, even though I don't think any of those movies are out and out terrible. I also think that they you know, you didn't let your audience miss them at all to come back. Yeah. Like, I honestly think if there had not, like, as much as I like Lego Batman, I think that if you had not had any Lego movies between Legos 1 and 2, I think Lego 2 probably would have opened uh, better than it did. Because yeah. that that would have, like, because 
the thing about Lego is, is like you can, there are some films where you're like, well, do the audience age with, you know, the, the, the property, but Lego is always appealing to kids. Like kids always love Lego. So what you have here is you have something that just doesn't look as appealing because, you know, you've, you've exhausted your franchise too much. Yeah. I mean, looking at this, it kind of feels like the, the recurring theme or the one that I can, uh, most easily pinpoint is, is give your audit, give at this point when there is so much vying for your attention, you have to give people a reason to see your movie in the theater, um, or just to see your movie as soon as possible. So the reason to see Avengers Endgame is you want to see the ending. The reason to see Captain Marvel is it's a precursor to Avengers Endgame and it's the first female led Marvel movie, which was a huge draw. Like the the percentage of audience that was female for that movie was huge. And we lost we lost so many good men because of Captain Marvel. Just <laughs> so many men had to die for that movie the to great open. Great men had to boycott Marvel because of a so so movie starring a Pre Larson and a pretty good performance. Um but there, that, that's the reason to see Captain Marvel. The reason to see Aladdin is nostalgia. The reason to see us is Jordan Peele. The reason to see How to Drain Your Dragon, The Hidden World, is it's an ending. Like, that movie did very well. That movie is... And also, it's been, like, what, four years? Four or five yeah. years since the last one? So, like, it's not like you just got... It's not like you were constantly inundated with How to Train Your Dragon stuff. And that's the thing. It's It's been a while since the first Lego movie, but there was... What was the reason to see the second one other than it's the second one? Right. That's not... Enough. Even, the ti- chapter- even the title said the second part. Yes, yes. John Wick Chapter 3, the reason to see that movie is Halle Berry and Attack Dogs and John Wick riding a horse with a samurai sword. <laughs> like that, it, it sounds silly, but like you put that in the trailer and you're like, yep, that'll sell me. That's a reason to see that movie. Even Shazam, like, oh, this is something different for DC. It's much lighter. It's like it's very easily quantifiable as like big, but with superheroes. You can, yeah, you can describe it to your friends in a sentence. It's big with superheroes. Oh, okay, that sounds fun. The end. And that's where I think something like Rocket Man, which is doing all right, it's grossed 133 million dollars, but when uh, worldwide, but when Bohemian Rhapsody crossed like what was it like seven, eight hundred million. Um, which is insane. I don't think the marketing distinguished Rocket Man enough from Bohemian Rhapsody. I think the marketing was very scared to be like, we may not like, will people go for this fantasy musical? Will they go for something that has like a sad through line? And I think they were caught between what the film is and being like, well, maybe we should make it look like Bohemian Rhapsody because Bohemian Rhapsody was so successful. Not realizing that people are like, well, I've already seen Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. You know, like, and now, now you're just trying to like, well, the, the reason people want to see Bohemian Rhapsody is they love fucking Queen. <laughs> you know, yes. also it's PG 13 and Rocket Man is R. So mm-hmm. of course, Bohemian Rhapsody is going to probably make more money, even though it's garbage. Yes. Yes. Well, and then there's a there's a flip side to all of this, which is that um, specifically when it comes to Late Night, which was released by Amazon Studios, uh, premiered at Sundance, got solid reviews. Matt and I both saw it. We liked it. It's fun. It's very commercial, very enjoyable. Um, it didn't do so great. I think it expanded wide this past weekend, and it did only okay. But uh, – and I think it's Jennifer Salk, who's the head of Amazon Studios, said in interviews earlier this year that, um, yes, she was excited about uh, – you know, obviously having um, something go uh, out at the box office, but the end game for them is having it as evergreen content on Amazon streaming service. 
which I think is the other flip side of this coin is that box office is not everything to some of these studios that are already selling the rights or studios that are streaming services that are already banking on like they just need content. And so it's just part of the content farm and something to put on their streaming service and say, we have this. So we don't really care if you saw late night in theaters or not. It will always be there on Amazon Prime. Right. And that sort of the theatricality of it gives it a kind of legitimacy that I think, you know, an a Netflix film, not to say that they're necessarily illegitimate, but because Netflix is all about the volume, then something like The Perfection becomes like a title that like people might talk about. But, you know, it becomes just part of this huge content grind, whereas like for Amazon, what they're banking on is that a bit more curation on their part. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like, oh, look, a bunch of fucking movies. Look, <laughs> which is that, that is Netflix, a bunch of fucking movies. <laughs> yeah. And I go to Netflix and I'm like, how can I not find the one thing I want to watch on here? Exactly. Like, and Netflix doesn't care. So as long as you're browsing and as long as you're on, they don't care. Like you're just binging and on to the next thing and whatever. But at least for Amazon, you know, they can be like, you know, we gave it. Uh, a theatrical run and it's going to be curated. Now what's going to be interesting is later this year when they're doing a Roma strategy with the report, which they're going to release the report in theaters for like a couple weeks. And then there's just going to be on prime mm-hmm. and their hope. And I think that's, that's not a bad play for them because whereas no. something like late night is like a fun kind of rom-com style comedy. Like it's a workplace comedy. Um, and that's something where it's like, oh, I would go out to see that. The report is heavy. It requires you to be an active viewer. It's a great movie, but it's also not like, hey, who wants to go to, hey, it's Friday night. Who wants to go see the report? They talk about is, torture and the abdication of American responsibility abroad. <laughs> but as someone who grew up like absolutely loving and obsessing over films like A Few Good Men, it's sad that like that's not an event enough in and of itself. No, it is sad. I definitely think that studios, to be, you know, to be blunt, are very much going for lowest common denominator. Like, let's treat our audience like a bunch of fucking children. If we, we have a movie that is definitely for adults, for thinking adults, but that is not going to do well just like Roma probably would not like do well, like it not blow up the box office. So we're going to put it on a streaming service so you can watch it at your leisure. Yeah. And I, and I get it. And we talk a lot on this podcast about like what, you know, I forget the, the phrasing that you put it, but like what happens when the fantastical is no longer fantastic. And like when it, anything it was uh, possible, Drew McWeeny's phrase, the, uh, the, the age of casual magic. Yes, casual magic. So, like, Avengers Endgame, Captain Marvel, like, those are 70%, 80% animated movies. It's actors standing against a green screen for most of that because you can just fill in the blanks. Whereas in the 90s, it was a little harder. I mean, I remember watching the uh, making of Independence Day, and, like, the big deal in that was, like, the miniatures that they blew up, which, uh, to my eyes, was magic. But, like, that was a lot harder uh, very expensive and you couldn't do too much of it because or else it would look too fake so you had to rely on you know building spectacle with your characters and sure that created some dumb movies um, but you know it, it it gave audiences like reason enough to go to the theater was Tom Cruise going toe to toe with Jack Nicholson that was all you needed and now it's like well we can cast a you know 
not an unknown, but like is someone that people may or may not know and put them in a superhero suit and people will go because it has the Marvel brand on it. Yeah. I mean, for studios, this is a fucking golden age. (laughs) You're no longer like no actor can ever have you by the balls. You can just be like, fuck you. I'll put in like I, you know, I'll get whatever actor I want to voice a CGI tree and make (laughs) a billion dollars. That's how I roll. Yeah, they're no longer beholden, and and I've been writing these How the MCU Was Made articles for Collider, and I've entered Phase 2, and it's interesting looking back on the making of these movies how in Phase 1, it was all about attracting high-level talent. So you hired Jon Favreau to direct Iron Man, you hired Kenneth Branagh to direct Thor, and almost all of those actors who joined Thor said it was because of Kenneth Branagh that they joined Thor. And then you enter Phase 2, and they hire the Russo brothers who like nothing against the Russo brothers but like they had come from television they were not going to attract any actor yeah and, it wasn't like oh fuck the directors of you me and dupree <laughs> yeah, no like that wasn't they because they didn't need it because they had the brand now and they had the characters solidified and sure they can attract someone like robert redford for like a small role but they know that that's not what's going to sell tickets captain america is going to sell tickets so they just focus on telling a good Captain America story. Whereas in the early years, it was like, gosh, like how are we going to convince someone like Rene Russo and Anthony Hopkins to join a movie about like a literal god who lives in this fantastical world? No, and I, and I think there is like sort of a flip side there because I think at the same time, you know, you can't when you you know. On, it's funny. You would think that like, oh, like, you, you know, you just said like you have to you're, they, you tell a good Captain America story. And there is that aspect. But I also think there's a cynical side where it's like all you need is to recognize the thing. So like I wrote an article earlier, you know, last month about how John Wick uh, Chapter 3 and Detective Pikachu are similar in that they're just I recognize the thing. So for John Wick, it's like John Wick Chapter 3 does not have a particularly strong story. It is, he goes, he comes back, and then, you know, it's mostly you go to John Wick to see him kill people. It's not a strong narrative. Uh, With Detective Pikachu, you go to see Pokemon. And so for studios, it's like, oh, well, audiences just want to see the thing. They just want to recognize the thing. And that's sadly good enough. So I think we've moved, sadly, from like, ooh, we'll just put these two actors together. So like, Will Smith and Kevin Kline are in the wild, wild west. Okay, is that, (laughs) what's the story? There is none. But now it's sort of like you come in and you just like, well, now you, it's like, I don't know who Justice Smith is. No disrespect to Justice Smith, but it doesn't matter because Ryan Reynolds is Pikachu. You know Pikachu, he's going to say some witty things. And that's just what the film is. And then he's surrounded by Pokemon and you're like, ooh, Charizard is here. And I guess... But that's not a like honestly. If I if I tried to describe the plot of Detective Pikachu, I would sound like a crazy person because it's fucking bonkers. Rob Schneider is a douche. <laughs> exactly, pretty much. <laughs> it's the animal all over again. It is. Rob Schneider was an animal. <laughs> so you know, it's it's still you know again. I'm not you know. I always come starring, back. Co-starring Colleen from Survivor. God. Oh. I forgot that was the whole setup for that movie. And people <laughs> like, people paid to make that. I saw it in theaters, man. Wow. Animal in theaters. <laughs> anyway, my I would go back to, and it's not that, like, obviously, there's no period where studios just aren't trying to make money. The studios are not in the business of making art. They're in the business of making money. And if they happen to make some art along the way, some high art along the way, that's great. What a bonus. But, you know, I go back to the William Goldman saying, which is that nobody knows anything. So, 
you know, when be you know, we we look at these failures of Godzilla and Dark Phoenix and you know, Men in Black International, and it's not like when these films were greenlit, someone was like, "That's going to be a pile of shit that fucking sucks." You know, they everyone who went into it think like, "Yes, this will be a good thing." It's just there is an underlying cynicism to it that happens to create sort of these conditions of, well, it doesn't matter if this doesn't work or this doesn't work, but also making movies is hard. It's just, it's yeah. really hard to just get a movie made, let alone make a good movie. And, and to be honest, you know, there are certain things where, you know, people, people think like, well, if this is, if this happens and then this happens and this happens, well, then this is not going to be good. Like I can tell you right now that, that this movie will not be good. And I'm like, no, you, you can't tell me that. I'll t let me tell, tell you a movie. It's, it's the fourth installment in a franchise. It has some old-ass director who's coming off directing an animated movie. And, oh, their production budget, just their original production got rained out. So they had to fucking move. And the production was horribly delayed. And it was in editing forever. I'm talking about Mad Max Fury Road, which everyone fucking <laughs> loves. But it was and not the in the co-stars hated each other. And the co-stars hated each other. So it wasn't exactly like the easiest production, but it's a fucking masterpiece. So yeah. this notion that like, I know best if thing all, all a production needs to succeed is to run smoothly is just nonsense. Yeah. No, it's, uh, again, as you said, nobody knows anything. We can sit here and ponder like what's going on. I still think that like there is something happening at the box office in, in terms of like you have to give people a reason to go. Oh, absolutely. Just, oh, I definitely think God. the landscape has changed, but I don't think anyone has a has a you know bulletproof solution on how to do that. No, and, and we can talk about the death of the movie star, but like the – but to be honest, the main reason that Bill and Ted 3 is happening right now is because of John Wick. It's because that Keanu Reeves is popular now, again. And he's a more, like, studios or financiers feel more comfortable putting their money in the movie because they feel like Keanu Reeves is a more bankable actor now. Who knows if that's true? Like, do people still show up for an actor? I have no idea. Uh, I still think that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is has the potential to be massive. Um, but nobody knows anything so uh, i'm very curious i i'm very excited for i always get excited for the end of the year um when kind of the more prestige movie comes out movies come out but over the past few years it's felt kind of less special because blockbuster season is now a 12 month a year thing like it was super nice to have a few weeks there last year when a star is born was the movie that everyone was talking about a movie with no explosions, no superheroes, no green screen. It was just kind of nice that we were all collectively like, yes, let's talk about a star is born. Let's meme the shit out of it. Like this is a movie that we all think is good and is fun and we can talk about. And it's becoming increasingly rare that that happens. I mean, if you don't think by the time we get to October, by the time we get to October, we'll have Todd Phillips' Joker, which is a superhero movie pretending to be a drama, and we'll see how that turns out. Maybe it's good, maybe it's not. But by the time we get to October, Disney will be getting ready to kick up the like final phases of the marketing campaign for Star Wars, and that's all anyone will talk about throughout November and December and January. Yeah. No, I mean, the thing is, is what is what Matt Singer called teaser culture, which is that you're always looking at the next thing. And I think that's part of why it's hard for even a film like Avengers Endgame to have much last, you know, even though Avengers Endgame is very well made, it's epic, it's it's a good story, like people liked it. Ultimately, your teaser culture just sweeps you up to the next thing and you don't get to dwell on these movies anymore. And also with teaser culture, everything's fighting for your opinion, your, your attention. Uh, and that doesn't just... 
that's not limited to just movies. So, you know, a film like Men in Black International can be like, look, it's Men in Black, but, you know, it has to compete with everything else. Yeah. I'm going to blow your mind right now. Did you know that the television series Game of Thrones aired its series finale a month ago? I don't believe you. <laughs> Feels like ages ago. And no one's really talking about it. Because it was, but also that's because it was bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not. They didn't stick the landing and everyone's like, let's fucking move on. Even so, like people were so pissed about the lost finale and they would not shut up about it. That's true. Things definitely move faster now. Yeah. And and you have to because the content machine keeps going. I mean, then, you know, Fleabag started up and everyone's talking about Fleabag and how great Fleabag is. and, And now, you know, Big Little Lies is airing. So now it's Big Little Lies. It just keeps going. Yeah, it's very tired is what I'm saying. Well, what I'm saying is this is actually a gift because what this (laughs) means is you actually don't have because there are so many options. You get to choose what you want. You actually don't have to sit down and watch a show that you don't give a shit about just to be part of the conversation. Like you can just watch whatever you want, watch whatever movies you want to watch. And like I still think people should go to the theater because I think it's an important experience. But you have a lot of choices. So embrace that. For sure. All right. Anything else to add or should we move on to recently watched? Let's move on and stop bitching about sounding like old men. Grumpy we old we men. are just, this is the grumpy old men podcast. <laughs> you know it. I know it. Our listener knows it. <laughs> we like things. I promise. Yeah. What do you like right now? What do you, what do you talk about that? Uh, well, I, so my recently watched is actually not a movie or a TV show or a podcast. I got back from Orlando where I was at a uh, media preview event for the new ride, uh, Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure, which is way too long of a title. Um, but it is the new attraction at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal Studios or, uh, Orlando. Uh, it's actually at their Islands of Adventure theme park. Um, and it's in the Hogsmeade land and it is a roller coaster billed as their most highly themed coaster yet. And having ridden all of the rides in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, uh, I can definitively say this is the best ride, uh, they've ever made. It's, uh, it's a bona fide roller coaster, but it has elements of like dark ride stuff so you'll you'll go like you'll zoom out and the ride is you're on a Hagrid's motorbike and you have a sidecar so you can choose to ride in the motorbike side or the sidecar side um and you zoom at like 50 miles per hour and then it'll slow down and stop to look at like a giant animatronic of Hagrid that's built to proportion to what uh Hagrid is like in the books and you come across a bunch of different magical creatures there are no screens. There is no 3D. It is all practical, and it's so smooth. Like because this ride stops and starts multiple times, I was expecting it to kind of give you some whiplash, but it doesn't at all. It's super thrilling, super surprising, uh, and just really well crafted. Like the so the the Wizarding World was created by Universal, but in tandem with Warner Brothers and the people who made the Harry Potter films. So they had Alan Gilmore there, who's the art director on a number of the Harry Potter films, and has kind of helped uh, supervise the building out of kind of the Wizarding World, alongside Stuart Craig, who's the production designer on uh, the Harry Potter films. Um, and the tangible details are just incredible. The The line for the Hagrid ride, you're going behind Hagrid's hut, and you get to see kind of his garden, and there's a bunch of pumpkins, and then you go inside these ruins, which are deep in the Forbidden Forest, um, that have long since been abandoned, but Hagrid uses them to like keep 
like creatures and stuff. Like you walk into a room and it's just full of dragon eggs. This is the room where he keeps his dragon eggs. Um, there's like specimen jars. Uh, it's just really cool. And it was all created in tandem with JK Rowling and the filmmakers. So it's all, you know, uh, in Canon and all part of the story and everything. Um, so if you're thinking about heading down there to ride the new ride, uh, I can vouch for it. It's fantastic. Um, the lines are insane right now. Um, but whatever you do, get a chance to go down there. Uh, it's really, really terrific. So, um, highly recommended. You really only have to wait 600 minutes for Hagger's Motorbike <laughs> Adventure. On opening day, the wait time was 10 hours. Uh, so <laughs> you could you would buy a ticket to the theme park and you would spend the entire day waiting in line for the ride. And there was no guarantee you would get on the ride because there were rain delays because it's outside and it's a roller coaster. So like they can't run when there's lightning within five miles. And it's Florida. <laughs> Pussies. <laughs> so there's thunderstorms. Um, and it's also like a really complicated ride. So they had, you know, some mechanical issues. They had to stop and fix things. And, uh, the, actually the night of the preview event, the ride broke down and we saw guys going out there with flashlights to get the people off the ride. And these were like VIPs. These were like the mayor of Orlando and like this, like uh CEO of universal studios <laughs> riding this ride and got stuck, which I thought was kind of funny. That's very uh, funny. Yes, it was very funny. Uh, so yeah, there there are definitely delays, but uh, you know, it's really cool. I, I look forward to checking it out sometime. Um, for me, uh, my wife and I have recently started watching Big Mouth on Netflix. At my uh, my brother had been recommending the show f- to us for a while, and uh, he actually visited last week, and we all sat down and watched it together, and we laughed our heads off. Um, it's basically it's from Nick Kroll. Um, as well as three other creators whose names escape me at the moment. Um, but it's an animated series exploring puberty from both the perspective of boys and girls. And it is an absolutely filthy show. It is unabashedly filthy in terms of just the sexuality and grossness of, of being that age. But the thing that makes it works is that it has a big heart as well. Like it actually does care about its characters. It's not grossing you out for the sake of grossing you out. Um, it, de- it genuinely wants to treat them like, you know, I think but the, the, the secret of the show is that it recognizes that if you're going to be honest about puberty and not exploit it just for laughs, you have to be honest about everything about that age and sort of, you know, what your relationships are like and, you know, how you understand things. And it's just, it works very, very well uh, in addition to being filthy and hilarious. It's so good. It makes me laugh so much. Yeah, and we, uh, we're very much enjoying it. Um, and, uh, you know, it has, you know, Kroll is, is, is plays multiple voices, but you've also got John Mulaney, uh, Jesse Klein, Jenny Slate, Jason Manzukas. Um, Maya Rudolph. Uh, it's it's just a very strong cast and uh, a very funny show. So if you've been, if you know, if we're talking about you know what to watch on Netflix, you know, Big Mouth, throw throw it on the list because it's yes. very it's very good. Definitely. All right. Well, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood, and you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.